Hello, my name is Andrew Gary and welcome to Seismic Sound Off, in-depth conversations in applied geophysics. I am joined by Mirko Vanderbon, guest editor of the special section on induced seismicity in the February 2018 issue of The Leading Edge. Induced seismicity, or human-induced earthquakes, is an important discussion that impacts local communities from Oklahoma to Alberta to the Netherlands. We highlight a few of the papers from the special section and also offer a quick primer on induced seismicity. Mirko is a professor at the University of Alberta and director of the Microseismic Industry Consortium, a collaborative venture with the University of Calgary, dedicated to research in microseismicity. He also recently completed an SEG honorary lecture tour of the United States and Canada on the subject of human-induced seismicity. Mirko joins me next. So I, I kind of wanted to start with our listeners at, at sort of the basics here. And could you define induced seismicity? It's a term we use to indicate that seismicity is not natural, but it's triggered by mostly a human process. That could be anything from humans building dams and then filling them up. It could be related to steam injection. It could be related to the uh, saltwater disposal, hydraulic fracturing treatments. What we do tend to mean with this, though, is that it's larger or moderate magnitude events. Uh, so often we say magnitude three and larger. And the reason we talk about these is because those are the ones which are or can be felt at the surface. And therefore, if they can be felt, they might be potentially damaging. So they are the only ones which pose any concern. Are felt seismicity and induced seismicity uh, interchangeable terms? We tend to use them interchangeable. Um, technically, they're not because induced means anything that is caused by humans. And so it could be a very, very small event which will never be felt at the surface. But in, when we talk to the public, we tend to use the word induced seismicity for the events which are or can be felt at the surface. Why has induced seismicity been of interest to the public lately? Oh, that's a great question. So the, uh, we've known about induced seismicity uh, for quite a while. The oldest examples I know of in North America come from the building of the Hoover Dam close to uh, Las Vegas. When they filled this dam up, it's 150, 200 meters high. The weight of the water started to create in the seismicity around the actual Hoover Dam. And so that then was built in the, uh, the 30s. So we know about human-induced seismicity for 80 years. The reason now uh, there is so much interest in it is thanks to uh, Bill Ellsworth, who's one of the guest editors on this special issue. He published a science paper in 2013. And what he showed was that the seismicity rate in the U.S. mid-continent was increasing much more rapidly than it had in the previous decades. And so obviously that raised a lot of curiosity, a lot of uh, questions and concern obviously from the public. And it turns out that his paper was really the trigger in putting it up towards uh, both high on the academic agenda in terms of what we're looking and researching in, but also in the interest of the public, the regulators and everybody else. Mirko, I'm, I'm here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. You're in Alberta, Canada. 
you know, based on your research and your understanding of the subject, would similar hydraulic fracturing and injection well practices here in Oklahoma result in similar induced seismicity for you in Alberta or for listeners somewhere in Pennsylvania or Texas? No, that's one of the things that has been puzzling uh, everybody quite a bit. The injured seismicity came as a complete surprise. We've known about it that it's possible for decades, essentially. But what it makes it uh, difficult to predict is that an operator can do a hydraulic fracturing treatment or saltwater disposal in one site. There is no induced seismicity. And then they do it in another site. And that site might be a few kilometers away. It might be completely different province, state, and that's when they do have human-induced seismicity. So we've tried to calculate some statistics about how likely it is that, say, a hydraulic fracturing treatment might lead to human-induced seismicity, and the statistics vary substantially. In Alberta in general, and Northeast British Columbia, so in Canada, we found that actually only around 1% of the disposal wells and hydraulically fractured wells had human-induced seismicity nearby. So 99% of these portions had nothing. But that changed a lot by area because in some areas, that percentage was much higher. It was 10%, 15%, or something like that. And so it's not as simple as I do saltwater disposal or hydraulically fracturing, therefore I will have human-induced felt seismicity. It tends to be that it's happens in some areas and not in other ones. And so this is a question everybody has, meaning the scientists, the regulators, the operators, obviously. Why here, not there? Uh, because if we understand this, then we can think about mitigation. How can you prevent the occurrence of this? Do you have some scientific hypotheses about what might be causing those differences? Yeah, there's numerous factors which are in play. Obviously, it depends on the geology. Uh, some areas, there are more older faults, which might be preferentially oriented for reactivation. In other, uh, so that's, that becomes more likely. Uh, things like, uh, what is the actual stress state? Are faults close to critically stressed or are they quite stable? So are they very mature, older faults which have been inactive for a long time? That plays a role. The, the volumes tend to play a role as well. Um, so in Alberta, we've probably had 180,000 hydraulic fracturing treatments ever since the invention of the, this process, which was in the late 40s. But we haven't had that much uh, seismicity until actually recently. That's when we saw actually the trend in seismicity increase as well. And the reason for this is most likely that the operators started to increase their volumes in the hydraulic fracturing parts. Uh, it's the same in other areas in Oklahoma. The vault, there has been always substantial saltwater disposal, but until around, say, uh, 2008, 2009, there was very few human-induced seismicity, but that started to increase when they increased the volumes too. So, so it's multiple factors that play a role. You and your co-authors write in the introduction to the special section that we are entering the second phase of research on induced seismicity. Could you summarize what the first and this now second phase is? Yes. So the, the first phase uh, was once the observations became clear that the, uh, the seismicity rates in the U.S. mid-continent were changing, 
there were obviously a lot of reactions to it. There was curiosity, what is going on? There was um, accusations, well, this must be because of oil and gas. There was denial, it cannot be because of oil and gas, this is uh, just not possible. And then in the end, it came towards the actual acceptance. There was sufficient evidence to make it clear that it was saltwater disposal in the actual um, uh, the Arbuckle Formation in Oklahoma, which was increasing the actual seismicity rate. And so the first part was really about, can we, uh, the first stage was about, can we understand what goes on and do we believe there's a cause and effect here between injection and the change in seismicity? Now, in the second part, it's quite actually accepted by most people that it is because of saltwater disposal and therefore, or because of hydrocleave fracturing treatments in some areas. And therefore, now we're entering the phase where we're starting to see how can we actually mitigate the occurrence of seismicity. Mitigate means to reduce the likelihood of this. And the reason we're talking about this is because obviously oil and gas has a large impact on the economics. It's really it can uh, it reaches to wealth generation, but it's obviously important to balance the economic impact with the environmental sustainability of an industry. And so now the mitigation is there. How can we best find the balance between those two parts: economic impact, environmental sustainability? Yeah, I, I liked how How and Billum in, took a, a unique tack by investigating earthquake sequences in the LA basin, Los Angeles basin, going back to the 1930s and 1940s. Has this type of historical investigation of induced seismicity happened in the literature before? It is. The people have looked at um, the historic seismicity. So the example I gave was on the Hoover Dam. Uh, what happened though was that in the Hoover Dam in the 30s, they realized that this was because of the, it's called the reservoir impoundments, just the weight of the water. In Susan Howe and Roger Billham's paper is very nice because what they went back, they looked all the way towards the 30s and the 40s a, uh, reservoirs which were subsiding at the time. And they put an enormous amount of effort into it because they had to go back at the original data, which may or may not have been digital. It was likely actually still paper copies of these uh, seismometers. If you look at the references, you'll see that they actually went down in towards newspaper reports. So these types of analysis are very, very valuable. They are not common just because of the amount of effort that's involved in doing this. So it's a great paper, actually. Lutzny and, and Zobak's research looked at the possibility of induced seismicity for a specific region. And I thought that was interesting because it was proactive. They were looking at could they predict induced seismicity in this area? Is that type of proactive research new to the literature? It is and it isn't. So what they wanted to do, what they did is they looked at the Delaware and the Midland Basin in Texas. And uh, one, of the, uh, one of the possible factors which determines if or you're not going to have uh, human-induced seismicity is simply how are faults oriented with respect to the actual stress field. Finding those faults in some cases is quite difficult, but also knowing what the stress orientations are is not straightforward. And so what they did is they looked at uh, well locks, borehole breakouts, they, uh, they looked at micro seismicity in order to get an idea of what is actually the stress state in the uh, western Texas towards Odessa and Midland. 
And so it's valuable. Actually, Mark Zobak is very well known for doing this type of analysis. He's been doing this probably for three, four decades as well. So he's a, a prime expert on this type of part. The reason it's important is, again, that the more we know about the stress state, the better it is for operators, regulators to think about the mitigation, the prevention of the occurrence of induced seismicity. One paper that really highlighted the difficulty of the, the work that you all are involved in is, is Schoenville et al., where they concluded that it is generally impossible to associate induced sequences with injection activity at specific wells. You know, how then could a state like Oklahoma or, or regulators in other areas establish effective induced seismicity mitigation procedures? Well, so what one of the, the surprises in the Oklahoma is that where the largest saltwater disposal wells are, and where we're finding human-induced seismicity, that can be 5, 10, 20 kilometers apart from each other. And so um, it is correct what you say, and it's very difficult to find out which of these specific injector wells are going to cause human-induced seismicity. Now, from a regulator's perspective, they are not always worried about which one of these wells is the actual culprit. They just want to prevent the occurrence of human-induced seismicity full stop. And so one of the things what the regulator did in Oklahoma was they found areas which were sensitive to human-induced seismicity and simply told all the injector wells, the disposal wells around that part, that they had to reduce their volumes. And so this across-the-board type of approach has become very, very effective because the seismicity has been actually declining quite substantially in Oklahoma. What you can imagine, though, is that because it was done over a large area, that uh, not everybody was uh, very uh, happy with this because it meant that their individual wells, whether they were or not uh, causing induced seismicity, was unclear, but they were also told, indeed, to reduce their volume. Did one of the five lessons in Karami at all that they offered from their experience in Western Canada stand out to you? It's a nice paper because what they do is they are reviewing their expertise on what they have learned from doing actually the monitoring. The lessons themselves, a lot of these are common sense ones. It's the, uh, for experts in the fields, they probably are not novel in itself, but it's a very nice review paper where they actually explain all kinds of parts. They simply, when I say it's common sense, they will point out, for instance, that not every treatment causes the same type of seismicity. Some of them may lead to micro-seismicity. This is seismicity which we induce on purpose to actually enhance the uh, drainage of the uh, reservoirs. In other cases, you may have human-induced seismicity, so fault reactivation. They are giving advice and comparing different types of recording strategies. The regulator, for instance, um, we ten or they tend to use larger networks which are very sparse. And what that helps them is to find where larger magnitude events are. It doesn't help them immediately to identify uh, the smaller events, which might be precursors. And so what you can do then is you can go from a very sparse network to a tailored network just around a specific well in order to really understand what goes on. And so the authors describe the pros and cons of these. And then they go into some of these parts where they say whether or not 
we're, we're focused a lot on magnitudes. Uh, what could be the biggest magnitude? How likely is it to have a magnitude three or four? And so these magnitudes come from the Richter magnitude scale. They tell us actually about the amount of energy that's being released. But what you can imagine is that if an earthquake or a seismic event happens at one kilometers or five kilometers, they may not lead to the same ground motion at the surface. And it's ground motion, the amount of ground shaking, which really determines if there is going to be damage or not, and if it's going to be felt or not. And so what they explain is that one of the ways possibly forward is to start monitoring ground motion-based uh, regulations instead of magnitude-based regulations. That was the, the first paper where I had read that the same, the same earthquake or the same event could have different magnitudes. I didn't realize there could be discrepancies between the different ways that they gauge these, these events. This is where things get quite technical. It's when we talk in parts, we simply say it's a magnitude one event or it's a magnitude two event. Uh, what happens, though, is that because nobody is actually on, the, on the, the exact spot in the earth where the earthquake is happening, we, don't, we have to estimate what the actual amount of energy is that is being released. And so what happens then is that there's different ways of estimating how much energy is released, and that leads to different types of magnitude scales. And so you may hear people talk about uh, an estimate from the body waves or an estimate from the surface waves or an estimate which is simply related to what's the amplitude at a certain frequency. And so what you can imagine is this leads to uncertainty in the actual estimates. And one of the parts we have is that the regulators in Alberta and British Columbia, they use a stoplight system. What that means is that anything below magnitude 2 is okay. Anything above magnitude 4 means you will get an automatic shut-in. A shut-in means you have to stop all uh, these, uh, all your operations. And so you can imagine if there's uncertainty in the magnitudes that there is quite a bit of discussion if this is a magnitude 3.8, a 3.9, or a 4, or a 4.1. And so there's confusion around this, and there's also uncertainty around this part. So that's one of the other papers from Hong Kao. He talks about this as well as the paper by Karimi Baturan and Genier, they talk about the uncertainty in these estimates. Speaking of, of Cal's paper, what they did was looking, they explored six of these red light events that you mentioned, these traffic light protocols that they have in Canada. How effective did they find the traffic light protocols in those instances? Now, this completely depends on your perspective. Hong Kao is part of the regulator. Um, or they are part of uh, NRCAN, Earthworks Canada. It's their mandate to monitor earthquakes around this part. And so the stoplight systems are designed to prevent the likelihood of damaging events. In other words, from magnitude, uh, it, in these areas, from magnitude 3 onwards, you may feel them. From magnitude 4 onwards, they may actually start to lead to cracks and things like that if people would live down there. We're fortunate because these areas are very sparsely populated. So nobody lives, hardly anybody lives there. So the regulator's perspective is to prevent the occurrence of damaging events. In other words, magnitude four for them works very well because we've never seen any repeats after of a second red light event after the first one uh, the operators were told to shut in. 
So from that perspective, it's excellent. It works. Now, if you're an operator, you have different concerns. You want to see indications that you are going to get a magnitude 4 event and be shut in. And so from that perspective, a lot of what these the regulator networks and the regional public networks find, they simply see no indications that things are moving in the wrong direction. And so from the operator's perspective, that's not very useful. And that's one of the reasons why a lot of the operators are using much denser private networks because they hope to see if it goes from a magnitude two to two and a half to a three, because that gives them then time to do act to do real time mitigation, and that's what they do. They really work think carefully about this. As a, a scientist and an expert in this field, and one that goes around speaking on this subject, do you find a common misunderstanding that the public has about induced seismicity? Yes and no. The public wants to understand what goes on. And so what we often see is that the public is looking at the scientists to explain them, this is what we know, this is what we don't know. Obviously, it's a quite, it's a contentious uh, topic. There's lots of different uh, stakeholders here. Operators, want to extract the actual hydrocarbons, make money. They want to employ people, which they can pay to do this. In other parts, though, it might be that this happens across farmlands and the farmer has no interest in any, uh, possibly not even the oil and gas exploration, and certainly has no interest in feeling his house shake. Right? Nobody wants human-induced seismicity. Uh, one of the things, so which is our role, is just to explain to the public, this is what is happening, this is what we know, this is what we don't know. Unfortunately, there's a lot of misinformation out there as well. And so we're trying our best to go and explain to whether it's a journalist or a concerned person, this is what is going on here, at least this is what we think is what is going on here, and this is how it might impact you. And so just Educating the people and educating the public is very important from a scientific point of view. This was a, a well-represented special section in terms of the amount of papers submitted to this. Was there one thing that stood out to you or surprised you from these, these papers in this special section? What surprised me most is the quality of all the work that's being done. I mean, it's a pleasure reading all of um, uh, what is it, seven or eight of these papers. There's two which we only could put online because actually we ran out of space in the issue. So two are online. Uh, the other parts, which it's very interesting and very pleasure really to see, is that this issue here has operators talking about what they may have seen. They have actually the regulator involved, their scientists involved, and so it's a very diverse type of papers which we actually see around these parts. And the very pleasant part of it is the open communication. They simply are saying, this is what we know, this is what we don't know. But there is nothing like trying to go and deny the occurrence of human-induced seismicity. Everybody sees this as, this is happening, this is what we don't want to have happen. And so all the, cons all the efforts now have moved in towards the mitigation procedures. What can we do to reduce the likelihood of induced seismicity? What do you hope readers of the special section take away? Oh, that's a good question. And 
Well, I'm hope for the, obviously, I hope it helps them to inform about the different aspects of what we're seeing. That's why it's nice that it's such a diverse crowd of offers. And I hope, obviously, as well, that it's informative for if people from the public read this. I'm hoping that it's informative for the regulators, because this may help them as well to think about how they can reduce better the likelihood of human-induced seismicity, obviously without harming the industry. And as well, then finally, for the operators, it may give them new ideas of techniques to try out, again, to balance economic and environmental sustainability of their assets. Is there anything else that uh, I haven't asked or that you would like to share uh, before, we, before we go? What I tend to say always to when I talk to people about this is that the first thing we need to do is increase the monitoring. That's happened now. Monitoring, we're doing better and better jobs of seeing where things are changing and where they are not changing. It's important to realize that not every saltwater disposal well or every hydraulic refracturing treatment will lead to human-induced seismicity. So from the scientific point of view, it's important we know this, but it's also important to understand why this may change in some areas and not in other ones. And then finally, I've mentioned this many, many times, but the mitigation is key in all of this. Human-induced seismicity at the very best is a nuisance, and so we just don't want it. At seg.org slash podcast, you will find the show notes, links, and bonus Q&A for Merco. Subscribers can read the full articles in the SEG digital library and abstracts are always free. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Your review helps others find the show. Subscribe to Seismic Sound Off on the podcast app of your choice to receive these episodes first. Seismic Sound Off is sponsored by the SEG Wiki, the place to find hundreds of biographies of influential geoscientists, open access tutorials, and ongoing translations of SEG's best-selling book. Type in wiki.seg.org to visit the world's first online geophysics encyclopedia. SEG members, it is time to renew. Now until February 28, your member dues can be renewed online at seg.org slash renew. Your membership supports the future of applied geophysics. Original music by Zach Bridges. This episode was produced by Isaac Farley and hosted, edited, and produced by me, Andrew Gary. Thank you to Steve Brown for his assistance. Thank you for listening. This is Seismic Sound Off, signaling off. <laughs>